Thank you for joining us today for our third module of the SDA Physiology in Sports Nutrition webinar series. I'm Bethany Allison, Accredited Sports Dietitian and In-House Dietitian for SDA, and I'll be facilitating the webinar today and would like to introduce Accredited Sports Dietitian and Accredited Practicing Dietitian, Elise Anderson, and Sports Scientist and Athletic Development Coach, Will Sheehan, who come to us today from the Sydney Swans, and they're in the facility. So Elise holds an exercise and sports science degree in addition to her qualifications as a dietitian. She's worked in elite sport for over 10 years, specialising in team sports. Elise has been a sports dietitian at the Swans since 2013, servicing the NEFL team and the QBE Sydney Swans Academy. And in 2014, she commenced working with the senior squad. As one of the only dietitians to hold a full-time position in the AFL, Elise has a unique understanding of nutrition servicing for team sports athletes. She's joined today by Will Sheehan, who is the Sports Scientist and Athletic Development Coach at the Sydney Swans. He has held positions in the AFL with both the Greater Western Sydney Giants and the Swans since 2018. He's also currently the AFL Head of Performance for the New South Wales ACT region. And in addition to his experience in elite sport, Will is also a sessional lecturer at the University of Sydney. I'd like to thank Will and Elise for their time and I will invite anyone who's got questions during the session to please write them in the chat box and I'll facilitate those questions at the end of the session. If we do run out of time, I will forward those on to Elise and Will to have them answered for you. So please be sure to write your name if you'd like that question and response to come your way. This webinar is being recorded and it'll be loaded onto Moodle platform after this event. And I'd like to now thank Elise and Will in advance and hand you over to Elise to start the session. Thanks, Beth, and uh, welcome everyone. We just wanted to begin today by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet, uh, we all meet. For us, that is uh, Gadigal land here in Sydney, and we pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples on this webinar today. Um, so just a bit of background, which um, Beth's already mentioned in a lot of detail. Um, I have been here at the Sydney Swans since 2013. I initially started working with our um, what's now our VFL team and the QBE Sydney Swans Academy. Um, I started with the senior team in 2014 and I'm still here. Uh, my industry background uh, leads me to have zero academia, so I feel like a bit of a uh, a fraud talking about physiology, but I'm completely moulded by application and the practicality rather than so much of an academic background as Will is. I mean, I mean, uh, yeah, Beth sort of covered off what I've done previously pretty well, but sort of primarily at the club here um, involved with sort of the sports science department, looking after all the different technologies and um, devices that we use, as well as working with athletes in the gym um, and on field as well. Um, I guess sort of today I'll be sort of assisting Elise and trying to provide a little bit more of a context or a bit of a springboard for her to, to, to leap off. Thanks, Will. Um, so first, we thought we'd start with the in-season processes um, and how we go about prescribing nutrition based on the numbers and the data that we collect. So a bit about the why. So why did we sort of look to the GPS data um, as a way of, intervening nutrition wise um, we saw a need that there's a large need in um, in team sports to use objectivity uh, we had a lot of comments thrown around from our coaching staff to the effect of oh you know athlete a looks big or looks small or looks weak or looks slow um, and everything sort of is preceded by looks so we saw a need to um get more objective data in order to answer some of the questions that the coaching staff had about physical preparation. And that includes uh, strength and conditioning as well as nutrition. Mm -hmm. And we also had a question of um, oftentimes when it was subjectively commented on that an athlete looked slow, we actually had data to say, well, they're actually quite fast. So there was clearly a lack in translation between the objective data and the fact that this athlete actually is fast and what's actually being seen on field from a performance optics perspective. So it led us to the question, well, how can we better facilitate the translation from the objective data that we have to what then is being seen on field? Um, and for me personally, there was 
plentiful data in terms of GPS. I just wasn't making the best use of it that um, at the time. So I focused, I was very focused on the nutrition data that I collected around body weights, fluid loss, training, USGs, et cetera. But there's a plethora of data available to me. I just wasn't making the best use of it. So um, I made a conscious decision to sort of get more involved in the performance team and learn what I could and build off their data. And partly that was driven by an effort to improve buy-in from the athletes. So the athletes really valued the GPS data. They're always asking about it. So I thought to myself, well, that's something I need to, to get around. Um, and also an opportunity to improve buy-in from the coaching staff. Um, if I have something to report to them and I have objective data from a nutrition standpoint, um, it allows them to have another piece to their assessment of performance puzzle. Um, and then objectivity for me allows me to report on things as opposed to just making subjective comment much like like they were doing at the same time um, and I just have found since I've started doing it that reporting tends to give nutrition a more prominent seat at the table when um, performance is being assessed so after each game when uh, coaches are looking for answers as to why we won or why we lost, um, nutrition has a seat there because I, I send out a report based on what the game nutrition was for the weekend. And I found it's helpful in improving buy-in from the coaching staff. So in terms of the how, what like exactly what was my process? I just identified that the athletes had a real interest in the GPS values. You know, I sit in the same office as Will and they're always coming up to say, oh, what were my numbers? How was my high speed? So they clearly had an interest. Um, I used the average game GPS data to assign them some in-game carbohydrate targets. And by giving them targets, I tried to appeal to their natural competitiveness as athletes. It's something they, they none of them are lacking in competitiveness. So by assigning them a target, um, they just eat it up. Uh, but I did give them the preference into how they meet the target. So um, I'm not necessarily that prescriptive. I've told them this is how much you need to get, but you tell me what how you want to go about it. Um, and I update the I update the sheet regularly to account for any changes in position or level. So we often have players that might change position during the season as they evolve as an athlete, they also might switch between AFL and VFL level and that can change their outputs reasonably. Um, and in terms of the coach report, what goes in that is their pre-game hydration, their fluid loss over the game, whether or not they met their carbohydrate targets and based on feedback from the coaching staff, they get a lot of things to read coaches do so they said to me we don't want any words or we want the words there but we're not going to read them we need really clear visuals of what's happened so I color code it red and green they have met their target or they've not or they were hydrated or they weren't so it's really black and white but red and green <laughs> for the coaches um, to make their assessment I guess as, as Elaine said um, we're sort of starting with that that in-season period I think naturally when sort of um, looking at these presentations, it's easy or maybe more natural to sort of start in the pre-season or off-season period and then look at how that builds towards competition. Um, but for us in particular, it's really important that the football program and what the coaches want to get out of the athletes on the field from a technical and tactical standpoint comes first. So for us, it's actually always or quite often it's a matter of working backwards. So having a look at what the game gives us, um, what the coaches want from the players um, from a technical, tactical perspective. Um, and then, yeah, sort of working back from there, how do we plan our pre-season? How do we plan out training throughout the week to sort of get the players in the best possible shape we can to sort of meet, meet those demands or, or those technical, tactical um, needs. So I guess, uh, I guess from a, uh, a starting point is we often like to measure the, the physical or core physical characteristics of the athlete. So uh, essentially we like to look at their sort of maximal sprinting speed, which we sort of measure by GPS. And I know some other sports do this using timing gates or um, radar guns. We just simply use a, a max velocity measure from the GPS units. And we sort of get players sort of ranging between 28 to, to 36 Ks an hour. So quite a, a big range there. And that's often position specific as well. 
Um, another core thing we also look at is sort of their maximal aerobic speed or, or aerobic capacity. And we do this via a, a 2K time trial. And again, there's other ways to, to measure this. It might be sort of a 1.6K time trial or a, a, six, uh, a six minute run for distance. Um, but we've found that, you know, we've a long tradition or, or history of using the 2K time trial, which sort of makes it um, relevant or, or easy to compare from, from year to year and between players. Um, and it's also something that the coaches are familiar with and have a bit of a grasp on um, what those sort of numbers mean. So I guess why do we sort of measure these two things is because they're actually really handy when it comes to prescribing conditioning bouts or even trying to sort of gauge what the game is going to is going to demand of a player. And I guess from um, Elisa's uh, perspective, this can be sort of energy system um, specific but if we look at sort of I've got an example here of, of three different players um, we've got a, a sort of a hybrid player who has got a very good sort of maximal aerobic speed so very aerobically strong and a pretty decent maximal uh, sprint speed as well I'm not sure if you can see me hovering my mouse there but um, quite a decent maximal sprint speed we've then got what we call a, a term a, a Ferrari so um, you know a very fast engine very high maximal sprint speed but you know they're they're going to chew up the petrol quite quickly um, and not have a very good aerobic engine and then we've sort of got our diesel athlete you know they're not overly quick but they can just keep going and going so they've also got a, a good maximal aerobic speed and basically how we we use this with our players and helps sort of gauge or give us an idea about what a certain demand or, or running effort is going to elicit from them um, in a training session or, or even in the game so if you look at that that dashed green line there. If we use that as, a, as an example, if we want these players to perform an effort at, at 22 Ks an hour, for that hybrid athlete, you know, it's only just above their maximal aerobic speed and they've got plenty of space or, or room left before they're hitting their maximal sprint speed. So for them, that's probably going to be quite, quite an easy or easier effort. Whereas if you look at the Ferrari, for example, it's sort of well above their, their uh, maximal aerobic speed. And sort of still, even though it's a long way from the maximal sprint speed, it's probably going to be a lot more uh, anaerobically demanding than, say, the hybrid. And the same goes for the, the diesel as well, again, just above their sort of uh, maximal aerobic speed. So it's probably going to be more of an aerobic uh, stimulus for them. And if we look at the different sort of percentages of their, what we call an anaerobic speed reserve, the, the percentages give us a good idea about what those efforts or those prescriptions are going to elicit from those individuals. So as far as the game goes and how we actually sort of measure the outputs, we use GPS quite a bit. Um, we sort of like to keep it quite simple. There's sort of, you know, Catapult, who are the GPS provider we use, they provide sort of over, you know, over 100 different variables that you can get from the device. But we like to try and keep it nice and simple. And again, we sort of use metrics that we've been using for, you know, a few years now to sort of keep it consistent and, and help with comparisons. And the players also become familiar with these numbers and, and what they mean as well so again some simple ones total distance or, or total volume running distance um, so again if you know they're into a, a jog or a light stride that's meant to represent that high speed running which is greater than 20 k's an hour or, or 5.5 meters per second that's sort of meant to be a, a band or a threshold which is around their their maximal aerobic speed and we've got a sprint band as well which is greater than 25 k's an hour or or seven meters per second so i guess we've sort of got those those three different bands to sort of get an idea about, you know, what are the demands or, or cover sort of the different um, energy systems, if you like, with, you know, your running distance maybe being more, more aerobically dominant, your high-speed running being more, you know, anaerobic, hybrid with aerobic, and then sprint definitely more anaerobic. And we also look at change of direction metrics as well, using the GPS devices. And again, they're probably more short, sharp turns, um, you know, accelerating, stopping, which is probably going to be a little bit more um, power orientated as opposed to the others. I've got a quick clip here just to give a little bit more of a, a background on the, the GPS devices and how we use them. My name is Will Sheehan and I'm a GPS analyst at the Sydney Swans. GPS devices sit in the back of those uh, red vests that you might have seen on some of the boys. Um, the primary information we get from those are um, simply how far they're running in total, um, how far they're running at certain speeds. So we can look at whether they're jogging, sprinting or, or whatever it may be. And also looking at how many changes of direction, um, 
how many collisions they're involved with as well. It's a way um, not only the players individually, but as a team, how the team is progressing as far as their fitness or the amount of load they're, they're putting on the team. So um, the coaches tend to use that information to plan um, ensuing sessions and ensure that they're building towards um, the season and then in season ensuring that the boys aren't dropping performance or they're not losing points or improving. The vests or which look a lot like um, sports bras. So the reason they, they wear them is it gets the uh, GPS device uh, nice and close to the body and means that it doesn't move around. So the GPS device is pretty sensitive with the information they provide. Um, so if it's sitting sit in the back of a jersey or um, sitting around loose, then it, you don't get accurate information from them. So I guess from a, the game perspective, what does it actually give us? Um, I think it's no secret that the, the game of AFL is, is very aerobically demanding um, with sort of, you know, large volumes. I mean, on average, you know, a team will do or a player will do sort of 13 kilometres and that can sort of vary from 10 to, to 17 and a half Ks sort of depending on the length of the game and, and what position you're playing. Um, as far as running goes, so above that four metres per second or above that 14 Ks an hour, um, you know, again, on average, about four Ks of that is done running anywhere from two to six um, and sort of of the total volume, about 31% is spent running. From a high speed perspective, on average, about a thousand metres is spent running at that threshold pace. Um, again, depending on position, that can vary from anywhere from 300 to 2.2 Ks. And from a sprint perspective, you know, on average, 162 metres um, you know, and that can be for anywhere from, from 10 to, to 550 metres. And also change of direction as well, on average, about 50, 50 changes of direction throughout a game. So, again, we can see that it is predominantly, or, or, or there is a large amount of running. Um, but I think it's also important as well to remember that, you know, 1K of high speed um, or at 20Ks an hour might be quite manageable for a lot of individuals, there's also a whole bunch of change of direction, you know, kicks, handballs, tackles, collisions. They're also, um, the players are also experiencing. And, you know, we're trying to quantify that as, as best we can sort of with our change of direction metrics. But um, I think when you look at these numbers, it's also really important to, to consider the context um, in which they're achieved. I think that's going to have uh, massive differences as well um, from an energy demands perspective. I think as well, as I said earlier, we sort of, we've got to respect or we've got to have the, the football program or the coaches sort of technical tactical model at the front of mind when we're sort of planning these sessions or, or looking at what the game gives us. And, and really those sort of averages or, or demands are a byproduct of the way that, you know, the Sydney Swans like to play their football. And, you know, we want to be the best two-way running team. So it means we run as hard in defence as we do in offence. You know, we want to be high pressure, which, you know, is going after the defence, high accelerations, high change of direction. We want to be a high contest team as well, which means a lot of collisions, a lot of up and back, and again, sort of going after the opponent. So, again, our metrics or averages may be very different to, to another team, um, and that could be purely because of, you know, the certain game model that we, we want to imply or we want to promote. So, again, really important that when you're looking at the GPS numbers or, or what the game's giving you is, is the context behind that. So as, as Will said, and when we're looking at the game demands in terms of nutrition, um, it's really important to familiarise yourself with the game model and what the coaching staff are trying to achieve uh, from the game perspective, because that's going to dictate a lot of what you do. I mean, it doesn't vary hugely, but, but it's really important to know that kind of information. So as Will mentioned, the total distance and the time on ground is roughly 100 minutes in play. So there's clearly oxidative contributions from carbohydrate, fat and protein. But given the, the next part, which is the percentage of, so they spend at least 40% in running, high-speed running and sprint, which is fairly significant when you consider um, the time as well as the total distance and then the percentage in spent in high intensity. So... Um, some athletes, as Will mentioned earlier, are really close to that MAS when they're doing their just their running. Uh, so that's clearly glycolytic for them and others are cruising, so probably more oxidative at that point in time for them. Um, when we get into the high-speed running, we're looking more glycolytic. Um, and then the sprint, obviously, is more of a contribution from PCR. 
Um, as we mentioned, the, the two-way run is really important for us. Um, so working really hard one way in offense and then turning around to work really hard the other way in defense. Um, and and that's there's contributions there from both depending on how far you're going one way and how far you've got to return to the, the next. Um, so clearly carbohydrate is... Uh, requirements are high in this sport. Um, in terms of preparation for the game, they might be moderate to high depending on the time of the game and the position of the athlete. Um, during depends on the intensity of the work done over the time. So I've allocated carbohydrate based off this. Um, I have not yet drilled down to the individual work relative to their MAS or their MSS. So I've not yet gone down to that level. At the, this point in time, all I've done is allocate carbohydrate based on the intensity of work done uh, over the time that they're on the ground. So in, in order to answer the question, uh, what, what are the differences between athletes? We sort of need to look at what, what difference does position make in terms of work? So I, I guess, as I said before, like context is really important. Um, and I guess at a snapshot, if we look at our, our sort of defensive group, our forwards group and our, our midfield group, there's actually not a great deal of difference as far as, you know, time on ground. And this is just for a quarter as well um, between sort of the high speed, you know, the sprint and, and change of direction metrics. Um, you know, we've got one sort of outlier there. It's a specialist position down the bottom, which is obviously quite different, but they've got their, their own demands. Um, as it is, but if you actually deep dive and um, have a little look a little bit more closely, you start to see the, the different nuances that Elise was talking about. So if we look at the midfield group as an example, we've got two players highlighted here. So the top one is our, our typical inside midfielder. Um, so, you know, that might be like a, a Luke Park or a Josh Kennedy or a James Rowbottom. You know, again, from a, a high speed or, or sprint perspective, that's not really their, their go or even their role. So, again, we could talk about putting the football program or the coach's needs um, first. You know, role play is, is a big part of that. And for them, you know, being able to sort of reach those high speeds isn't the biggest sort of um, determining factor. For them, it's going to be more so that change of direction component. So their ability to scramble, you know, get in and out of the contest, you know, tackle, um, you know, follow the ball and, and have an impact there. Whereas we look at more of an outside midfield player, say a winger who sort of spends more time laterally working from, from end to end, we can see that they've got a lot more of a high speed and, and sprint demand, um, you know, despite playing less game time than that inside midfielder and not as many changes of direction. So, you know, as, as Elise will, will go into detail now, what might look like on, on average sort of, similar demands if we deep dive into it there's actually some some little nuances to to each individual player's position and role um so obviously underpinning all of the athletes there's an aerobic component as will mentioned earlier um but if we if we take a look at that that ruck position so they have less time on ground generally um the focus of their work is the power and contest work and their leg power that they require for jumping so they have probably a lot more proportion um, where they're using their pcr systems because a lot of their work is short and sharp uh, but they do obviously as i mentioned still have an aerobic component but they it's important to note that they do have these um significant periods within their game where they're going to be using their PCR system. Um, similarly for the inside mid, they have lots of changes of directions. They're what we call our crash and bash specialists, um, the power and contest work. So they have a bit more of a hybrid um, between the PCR and glycolytic. And then our wingers are running much longer distances and they've got their higher um, high speed running, very high speed running sprint as Will mentioned. So they've got some PCR, but they're probably predominantly glycolytic. Um, and then just in terms of here, so what would what would I do if someone had a below average GPS game? Because at the moment we've, we've based everything off an average GPS game. So what a player usually does, but what about if they come out of the game and they've had a below average GPS game? So you can potentially predict a below average game if you know something about their usual position and a position they might be changing into. Um, and you could potentially adjust their recovery carbohydrate if they've done less work than what was expected. 
Um, if they've had an above average GPS game, that's quite difficult to predict. Um, so in order to overcome that, I sort of observe the GPS live. So I'll often talk to Will um, during the game at the quarter time breaks and ask if any players are sitting significantly higher in their sort of high speed running sprint uh, time on ground and total distance just to, to be able to adjust their carbohydrate on the fly. Um, so I do that as well as I might, if I have not got that information live, I might adjust their recovery carbohydrate if they've had an above average GPS game. And I might also flag some key micronutrients for recovery, given their, their likelihood of being potentially sore from a, an above average GPS game. And then that will, that will be slightly different depending on the type of player, like your inside mids are, are going to be quite sore because of the nature of what they do. Um, but even if a winger has had a significantly higher GPS match, um, then that's still a flag for them as well. <clears throat> so just in terms of the match nutrition, so what I, what, how I took this information and applied it to the nutrition is... Um, I took the recommendations of carbohydrate for endurance exercise, 30 to 60 grams per hour. And I thought, okay, well, let's have a look at what, what the positions do and then how I can look at some parameters and start allocating targets. Um, ideal specificity is pretty tricky in team sports. Um, it's, it's a bit less physically predictable than say uh, a race where you might run from A to B and you're going for uh, a particular time. So there are, there are so many factors involved in a football game and momentum swings and type of play. And so it's a, it's a lot less um, physically predictable. Um, so I just use this as an absolute starting point to, okay, well, let's just do something and look at where we can start to start giving these guys some targets as to where they need to get to. So I looked at their average GPS match data from 2021. So this is at the start of this season. Um, and I looked at their time on ground and then their percent time spent in high speed running. And then I allocated them a carbohydrate target per hour based on the work they're doing in high speed running. So uh, you can see for the ruck here, their average time on ground is hundred minutes. They only spent 8% of that in, um, in high speed running. So I allocated them uh, a target of 30 grams per hour as a minimum. Um, and then their minimum target for the game was, was 50 based on how, what their average time on ground is. For the winger, uh, very uh, same uh, average time on ground, but as you can see, quite a significantly higher time spent in high-speed high running. So they have naturally been allocated a higher carbohydrate target for the game. Um, and so their minimum carbohydrate target for the game was 100 grams. And then here we've got the inside mid, which again, similar time on ground, and they're spending 10% of that time in high-speed running, but remembering they've probably got more contributions from PCR given the nature of their role. Um, I've allocated them a target of 40 grams per hour uh, carbohydrate, which equates to 66 grams for the game. I guess that's sort of the the... The game demands in a nutshell. Uh, so I guess we're probably gonna have a little little now as we have sort of um, prepare for the games week on week in season. Um, because the, the game demands so much of the players, um, they are sort of experiencing such high loads. Generally, you'll sort of see your, or they'll report a couple of days after that they're quite sore. Um, so on a sort of general um, seven day turnaround, it, it's quite hard or we try really hard to balance you know, find a balance between recovery and then, you know, getting back into training and trying to improve performance for, for the next week. So generally, as I say, because the game takes so much out of them, earlier in the week tends to be a little bit lighter and, and the intensity um, is sort of reduced. And then we'd sort of like to build over the week as we head into the game. And, and particularly um, when I talk about intensity, I'm not just talking about the um, actual speeds we're getting them to run at, but also like the intensity of the skill drills themselves. So, you know, the change of direction, the crash and bash, the, the pressure that's experienced in those drills is a lot higher in the, the second session of the week as opposed to the first session of the week. So if you look at that that T1 there um, on those those graphs, so if we play a game on a Saturday, normally I have a Sunday off, 
Monday they'll come in and do some some light strides and a little bit of mobility and, and some weights. And then the Tuesday will be the first session of the week. And if you sort of look, you can see that the, the proportion spent in, of high-speed running and, and very high-speed running and even change of direction is quite minimal, especially compared to the game. Wednesday will often be off and then Thursday will be the biggest session of the week. And again, not only are the coaches ramping up the drills here in, in preparation for the game, but also positions are on the line. So guys that might be playing VFL are also trying to, you know, have the crack at making the AFL squad. So there's a little bit more um, intensity from that perspective as well. And also as well, you've also got to keep in mind that while um, seven days is sort of the average, sometimes we might have a five-day turnaround, sometimes we might have a, an eight-day turnaround. And based on those windows, we'll generally, you know, either drop a session or, or do a little bit more in a session. Um, but again, we're going to make sure that footy is priority and the coaches are getting what they want out of from a from training from a technical tactical perspective and then sort of you know the loads and, and whatnot that we want guys to, to hit from a I guess a physical prep perspective that sort of needs to follow on after that so again making sure that we're trying to talk to the coaches get or, or find out what they want to get out of the session and then trying to interlace sort of the physical prep stuff with that um, I guess also talking about those different turnarounds, so the influence of a, a five or a six-day turnaround versus a seven versus an eight. At the club here, we sort of use a, an odd, uh, sorry, a red versus orange versus green week. So a red would sort of be, um, that's that's a bigger turnaround. So red meaning that we can sort of go after it a bit here and, and train a bit harder, and that sort of transfers through to the weights room as well. We can sort of lift the intensity a bit as far as what the guys are doing, maybe pre prescribe a little bit more volume, Orange might be your, um, your seven-day turnaround where we've got the two, two sessions, the, the main T1 and the main T2 then into the game. And then the green, you know, that's generally going to be a lighter week. If we've got a five- or six-day turnaround, where we've got just one sort of training session and then to a game. So we sort of use this traffic light system as a bit of a guide to sort of not only control sort of what we're – or the loads that we're monitoring on field with the GPS, but the, the weights that we're prescribing in the gym as well. And so just from a nutrition perspective, what's really nice about those graphs that Will just showed is for the players, it's really visually easy to see the load difference between training and a game. Um, and what I've learned over my time is that males are very much visual learners. So being able to show them something like that and use that as a platform to educate them on the concept of fuel for the work required is really helpful. So simplistically put, if I'm educating them, I'll often show them those uh, GPS graphs and, and talk to the um, carbohydrate being, you know, for instance, if they're, if they're fueling with eight grams per kilogram uh, carbs on a match day, then at training, they're probably looking at around four to five, depending on um, the day and also considering, you know, what what other training they'll have to do given that they've got weights and maybe they do or don't have an off leg session after the main field session. So taking that into consideration, but it's still nice to, to use that data in order to educate them on, well, you don't need as much energy on this day and you'll need more on this day. And then they can see visually from their loads, how that applies. Um, and then you also have to consider whether they've got active or inactive downtime in the afternoon. So some of them sit on the PS4s for the eight hours following training and others uh, head down to the beach and do some extra recovery, some play golf. So taking that into consideration is really important as well because that contributes to their overall energy for the day, obviously. Um, however, I often find that their intake is greater than their expenditure on their training days. And it's far less than their expenditure on a match day. And that's partly got to do with so many other factors like nerves, not wanting to feel too heavy for the match. Um, so it can be quite tricky to, to educate them. But showing the GPS loads is really helpful in their understanding of, of how much they're actually doing and what days they're doing more. Um, as Will mentioned, the intensity increases throughout the week, um, and he he showed before the, the increases in change of direction and that very high speed running, yet the total distance is similar to the first session of the week. So for the same amount of distance, they're just doing more intense work. In terms of the other things you need to consider for that main session of the week, it's their final push for selection into the AFL side, and that's really important. Um, they need to feel good. They need to feel well-fueled. This is definitely not the session that you want to compromise uh, fueling for. 
um, you, you definitely don't want to be risking any injury in this session. And so you're aiming for it to be well-fueled, uh, given all of the above that I've mentioned. However, the, the players also need to feel good because feeling good is really important for their push for AFL selection. So sometimes you need to compromise on that. Um, the time of the session can make it tricky, particularly with young males. The time of that session is generally 10 a.m. So they often leave home about 7.30 when they consider their preparation time. And generally, um, they're not all that organized in the morning. So you compromise a little bit on that um, and try and make suggestions that are really appropriate to the age group and demographic of who you're working with but still trying to acknowledge the, the amount of load that they're about to do and trying to find good solutions that are going to satisfy their um, needs, but also satisfy what they are able to achieve as a young 20-year-old male living out of home for the first time. There's also a compromise on sleep. So they are young males. They do need a lot of sleep and you don't want to compromise sleep from a recovery perspective. So I don't necessarily want them to get up at you know, 5.30 so that they can eat a, a, a larger meal. So I'll try and suggest things that are, are potentially liquid foods or um, a, like a bar that might be more transportable that they can have on their way. Uh, it's also important to consider that some of them do have body weight and skin fog pressures in season um, and their body weight on that main session uh, contributes to their average for the week. So some of them don't like to be uh, well-fueled and well-hydrated if that's going to impact their body weight and increase their average for the week. So there are a lot of nuances to um, battle with uh, in terms of getting them properly fueled for that very important session. Um, in terms of any differences with our AFLW team, uh, it's really tricky to know because this is our first season of having a W team, uh, which is exciting, but we just don't have any data parameters for them. Um, and they don't yet, it's not that they don't value the GPS, they're just learning about what GPS is and how to interpret it at the moment. So they probably don't have place as high a value on those numbers as what our men's team do, who are very used to them and have had the same numbers over a, a large portion of their careers. Um, in addition, their training age is significantly re reduced compared to the established footy states. So given um, the logistics and the soft cap requirements for AFLW, our, our team um, aren't as, we, we have a lot of really young girls from within New South Wales. So um, that's quite different to some of the other teams. And at the moment, they're just focusing on learning to train, learning how to be professional, their energy availability and injury prevention. So we don't really drill down as far because we, we just don't really know anything about them at the moment. So we're very uh, doing everything on a very superficial level with AFLW. There's something else that we also look at um, throughout the, the in-season week, particularly during or, or sort of before our main training sessions, uh, the um, a sort of player wellness and, you know, we sort of put them through a or send out a questionnaire where they're required to perform some simple physical tests. So, you know, hopping on one leg, uh, a single leg glute bridge, you know, a sit and reach. And if, you know, if they feel any, any pain on those, um, they will, um, you know, report it and that'll come up as a flag for us. Um, we also look at asking them about sort of any general soreness they might have, um, you know, fatigue, sleep you know we'll ask them firstly how they slept then how many hours they had slept for and that's just a simple recall um, and then we'll look at that against their their average um, and then also again we'll ask them questions regarding you know stress and and mood and while they come for flags for us um, and you know we we generally um, conduct conversations with players around those it's probably more more prevalent or important for um our welfare staff to, to follow up on, especially our um, sports psych. So I, I guess for us throughout the season, um, having this sort of monitoring pre-training, it's quite simple for the players, um, but it sort of helps give us a snapshot of where they sit pre-training. And then if we sort of need to adjust anything on the fly or intervene in any way, um, we can do that. I guess sort of anything below normal, comes up a flag so as I said um, if they sort of get any 
niggles or, or pain on any of those movement tests. Um, it'll come up as one of those little flags in the first four columns. And then if they sort of report below normal, um, it'll either come up as a, a one down arrow or, or two down arrows if it's if it's severe. So again, for us, it's something that's visually easy, easy to use and, and easy to follow up with players. Uh, we had previously used sort of jump monitoring and I know that's quite common um, in professional sport. Um, however, we sort of found that a lot of the guys, it's, it's hard for them to sort of get up and get a true value, um, particularly the time that they're doing it. And a lot of them as well were just sort of putting in a number and weren't actually doing it. So we actually found that we, we got better buy-in or compliance by taking the jumps out and just having the, the readiness questionnaires they could almost do at home or on the way in. Um, and we're also, when we did have jumps in place, we weren't really intervening on the back of them. So these guys have a lot of, a lot of sort of um, questionnaires or, or data forms thrown at them throughout the week. And we just sort of want to try and make it as, as simple as possible. And so just in terms of what the, the context is behind those flags. So if there's a flag, we'll often have a conversation with the athlete um, to gain some context as to why. We might make some training modifications and there might be a discussion from me around a fuel strategy to, strategy to match a new load. So if it's soreness that they're flagging for, there's often a discussion re-injury and GPS load. So was their GPS load significantly higher over the weekend? Um, or are they flagging for soreness because they, they actually got a corked thigh and, and that's what that's all about? Um, there may or may not be a training intervention depending on what that discussion shows and or some supplementation or, or dietary advice to support that. Um, in terms of fatigue, we might discuss uh, wh whether there's additional reductions in sleep and whether that might explain the fatigue like we have a lot of parents new parents amongst our playing group um, so oftentimes if they flag for sleep we'll just check in with them and make sure that that is uh, child related and not necessarily um, related to it to anything else um, we might also monitor check their their recent loads on gps and or and if they've had an illness recently Again, from that, there might be a training intervention or multiple training interventions, um, plus dietary advice or not if required. Um, if they've got repeated fatigue flags, we'll often look at the relationship to their sleep, um, and it might be more of a dietary and medical discussion if they're having repeated flags for fatigue uh, and their loads are being monitored. Um, if they're flagging for sleep, we often ask for context around that, as I mentioned. We might give them some education around napping uh, and their sleep environment and some dietary advice. And then if they're still flagging for sleep down the track, um, a medical intervention might be the sort of last resort in that uh, respect. So I guess in the pre-season, so um, as we've seen, we're pretty familiar or we're comfortable sort of quantifying the the dem uh, demands of the game. So I guess throughout our pre-season period, the focus to, is to really try and build up the athlete or, or build up a resilience to the loads that they're going to be experiencing or the demands they're going to be experiencing um, in the game. And on that first graph there, this is sort of over the 12-week the pre-season. Um, that's probably sort of what you would expect from a, a periodization perspective. You know, as, as the weeks go on, you, you gradually bump up the load um, you know, expose them to, to higher training time and then in turn, um, you know, they're going to accumulate more, more total distance as, as they do more. Interestingly, though, um, from a high speed and sprint perspective, um, it actually stays quite steady across the pre-season period. Um, and I'll explain why that is in a minute. But um, I think it's in, important to, to realise that, um, you know, while the perfect model or the perfect idea of, you know, a pre-season periodization might look like that first graph of, of total distance in team sport. Quite often it won't be like that. And it can be quite varied um, and, you know, even undulate or, or decrease like we see with that high speed graph there. And the reason, again, as, as I've, I keep hammering home with is footy is generally is, is key and that's going to be at the forefront. So generally across the pre-season period, we'll actually shy away or not shy away but we'll sort of expose the players to less um i guess prescribed conditioning bouts so whether that's you know 
um, shuttles or 200 meter efforts or 100 meter repeats or even 3k runs and we generally try to get a lot more running in in footy skills and with that increase in skills and increase in pressure throughout the pre-season you actually get an increase in their sort of change direction or, or neuromechanical load so while it looks like we're actually you know decreasing here or or tapering off across the pre-season it's actually going to be a jump for the individuals because they're actually getting this in you know football related skills where you've got some some argy bargy stuff and, and change of direction as opposed to just linear straight running and we know that we're still taxing the guys or, or um, pushing them across the pre-season period because across the pre-season period we actually ask them um, or we take some some simple RPEs. so there's a bit going on this graph but um, as I alluded to this this orange line here and the orange bars are actually sort of how hard the group perceived the conditioning bouts to be for a given session. And as we can see, sort of across the pre-season, that decreases. As I said, that's because the actual dedicated conditioning bouts are reduced across pre-season as we start to head in towards games and increase the amount of skill work that we do. And again, that sort of, as I showed on the last slide, is quite steady across the pre-season. But as the skills and pressure increases, which is actually the uh, sort of dark or, or yellow line there is a gradual increase across the pre-season. And that sort of um, also corresponds with an increase in um, the daily RPA or, or daily perception of, of effort across the pre-season. So while it might look like the, the running demands or the actual physical output is decreasing across the pre-season, the amount of footy and um, I guess technical work and actual footy related stuff they're doing increases. And with that, generally it becomes a lot harder for the athlete. And again, that, that mirrors up with sort of the chain direction um, metrics that we look at. And we use these as quite a good gauge for sort of pressure and, and, and football related stuff. And also I haven't sort of specifically touched on it, but um, if you look at the blue line as well, that's our sort of weights program as well so you can see that the weights or the periodization of the weights is gradually in increasing as well um, as the pre-season goes on and that's naturally because you know we want to build intensity there um, as we go um so in terms of pre-season nutrition obviously the training volume is greater than the in-season um, and the volume increases over the pre-season as will just showed um, the intensity also increases over the preseason. However, that's coming largely from the football skills side of things rather than direct conditioning, uh, as Will just said. So the high speed running and sprint remains stable, um, but the change of direction is what really increases. And that's what really bumps up that RPE from the skills perspective. So their Monday sessions, which we term T1, and their Friday sessions, which we term T3, are greater in intensity than their Wednesday. So they're sort of a high, low, high in terms of their week. So there's obviously a greater requirement for carbohydrate on the T1 and T3 sessions. Um, but T2 presents an opportunity to change the fueling strategies. Um, so we might be looking for some, and, and it's not necessarily the same for all the athletes. It could be, um, or it might just be certain athletes that we do this with, but um, we could do train low on the, the T2 session um, or make water only available. Um, there, there's a few different strategies that you could use there. Um, but always it's individualized and we're trying to support individual goals. So whether that's increasing some, that session specifically, the T2, is really about supporting individual goals. So for some guys, they might be doing um, continuing to build their aerobic base. And largely it's built on – so our base training is sort of starts in the off-season when the guys are away from the club and we don't have necessarily a good view on them. Um, so some guys might come back in, in better condition, if you like, than others. Uh, and so some will still be continuing to work on that aerobic base during the pre-season and others will be sort of in the refinement phase or is sort of almost moving to a pre-competition phase, focusing on, on some different things. There's a lot of um, athletes trying to alter body composition at that point in time. Um, and there, there might be some trying to improve their change of direction, some trying to increase their two-way run some that are just focusing on power and acceleration, some that are purely focusing on strength. Um, and for that T2 session might, might 
uh, drop some of the conditioning in favor of more weights, particularly if it's an athlete that we're trying to put weight on and size on in the gym. Um, and some of them are just looking to improve their technical skills. So knowing what each player's goal is in that session, but also sort of over the course of the preseason, like they're going to have one specific focus um, is really helpful in determining their nutritional needs. Uh, in terms of recovery, uh, all I can say is the technical knowledge is really important, but reading the play of the sport is critical. Um, so our athletes only have weekends off over the off season and over the summer, which is our preseason. So unfortunately, the recovery from the biggest session of the week, which is often that, that Friday T3 session, and the preparation for the other biggest session of the week, which is uh, the Monday T1 session is likely to be compromised given um, that they're all young males and that that's their only time of year that they get weekends off. So it's important to work within the parameters or I feel it's important to work within the parameters of the athletes that I have. So in order to do that, I try and maximize their recovery before they walk out the door on Friday. But I also have to accept that it might all be undone that evening and it might not be as perfect as I had hoped. Um, and sometimes I'll talk to the athletes to find a happy medium. So particularly if there's someone who uh, has been injured or we're trying to uh, achieve some really specific body composition goals with, be that increases in lean mass or reductions in body fat, I might talk to them about the implications that their recovery and preparation is going to have on their sessions and what they can get out of them. Uh, so in terms of when it doesn't fit the mould, and this is where it feels like it's fairly frequently in team sports, um, special cases. So the, the thing that I can say about team sport is it's, there's always an urgency to outcomes. So everything is required yesterday. And um, sometimes you're, you're requested to do things at not the ideal time to be doing it. So for example, a reduction in fat mass required in season uh, as we've seen from the loads, there's there's not as much volume there um, to play with. So we might have to increase their volume by adding additional off legs um, at, to their sessions after their field session. But we also don't want to compromise any of their energy levels because that might affect their performance the following weekend. So it's a really tricky one to navigate in terms of making sure they've got enough energy they're in a slight energy deficit, but they're not, they're fueling well for their performance on the weekend to achieve what we need to achieve. Um, and the, the mode of that might also impact their access to quality nutrition. So for instance, we've had um, one athlete who was swimming and there are currently no pools anywhere near Moore Park. So he was having to walk 15 minutes uh, to his car because parking in Sydney is also a treat and then drive 15 minutes to a swimming pool, do his session, return back, and then find a park, walk 15 minutes back to the club. So um, there's all those kind of logistical things that you need to consider from a nutrition perspective uh, in those special cases as well. Um, also an increase in lean mass is equally not as ideal in season. Uh, and part of the reason for that is um, we need to add in additional weight sessions generally but we can't add them in the day before a game because we risk soreness. Um, we really need targeted recovery and it's tricky to, to understand where to put extra sessions because we've got recovery from the game the previous weekend, but we don't want to impact the game on the following weekend. Um, and given our program, the nature of our program is quite condensed in season. So uh, a lot of our weight training is fairly close in time to the field session. So players won't have very long to recover um, in order to do a really good quality weight session. So I need to consider their refueling options options and their access. Um, ideally, you know, we might put them in a later weights group, but that's not always possible. Um, sometimes there's a special case of maintaining their aerobic base in season. So if they've been an emergency or a medi-sub player often and the draw hasn't worked in our favour, um, as in the last couple of years, we've had several players had to be in COVID isolation for various times. So these players might have to do additional running after games in order to maintain that aerobic base that they built up in the pre-season. And you need to consider that when you're thinking about their 
their energy expenditure for that day. So it may not just be what they do in the game if they've got additional running to do after games. Um, and that's the case often with the Medi sub too, is that if they've only played a quarter, they might have to do some additional running after the game in order to meet a somewhat game demand, but it's not going to be as high as what an actual game would have been for them. Um, and then they might have an increase in volume or intensity in the week following no game. So you need to consider that when you're talking to them about their fueling for the following week. Um, and just some challenges with scientific theory and team sports. It's really hard to get quality data, um, even just in terms of weighing in and weighing out. Um, I've got people weighing in in jumpers, shoes, um, and it can be really tricky to catch them. So I often will try and place the scales in a really good spot from a convenience perspective for them, but it might mean that I'm weighing every athlete in their shoes. Um, so quality data can be really tricky to get. There's always an urgency with everything. So there's no time to, to necessarily look at, at uh, your data analytics and create really nice um, hypotheses. There's often an urgency from a player contract perspective. Um, so we often take the approach of can't hurt might help um, because athletes are contracted at the end of the day and, and they need things now. Um, and in terms of scientific theory, the, the team culture plays a role as well in, in what you're able to do uh, and apply from a scientific perspective. Um, and the, the, each sport has their own challenges in that sense. Uh, in terms of future direction, so where do I want to go with the uh, application of nutrition and um, looking at the data that we collect? I'd really like to take a deeper dive into their individual workloads in the game and really um, drill down into that percent MAS, MSS, sprint speed and aerobic speed that Will spoke of in the first few slides. Uh, I'd also like to give more education around those red, orange and green weeks. That's something that I haven't really done well this season in terms of the, the turnaround times. Um, and I need to make greater investment in what, what other data, aside from the GPS, appeals to the athletes and tailor my advice accordingly. Um, oftentimes, I find that the knowledge is all there, but, but I, the struggle is how to get it across to 50 people who are completely different personalities and have different values. So that remains the challenge. Um, and we want to continue to improve the translation of their physical preparation into their performance optics on field, which is the first thing I mentioned, um, and then supporting that with nutrition the best way that I can. Individualize their pre-season training using the GPS data. Uh, we just started with in-season this year, so I haven't really uh, drilled down into their individual um, training sessions for pre-season, but I, that's a project for this off-season. Um, and increase my use of the gym aware and the strength data to inform some of the nutrition um, information and practice from, from the strength side of things as well as GPS. And I guess sort of from our perspective, something that we've been trialing this year on and off and really want to sort of hone in on next year is heart rate monitoring. Um, so again, as we sort of alluded to, different contexts or, or positions throughout the game sort of give you a different external load. Um, and if we're able to implement sort of heart rate as an, an idea of internal load, we can potentially get a better idea of, um, you know, how players are working relative to one another. Um, and also as well, probably provide a great tool or a better indication of sort of actual energy expenditure um, throughout those training sessions and throughout the games as well. And that is all we have. So hand over to Beth if anyone has any questions. Thank you so much, Will and Elise. That was a great dive into what you're doing at the Sydney Swans um, and lots of practical applications that we can take from that. I can't see any questions in the chat um, and we've got a little bit of time, just a very short amount. So I'd just like to ask, I guess, both of you, you sort of referred to the AFLW and not having that knowledge of the GPS and that awareness around it. When you do have new athletes come into the environment, so just been drafted, how long does it normally take them to to get that grasp of how to use the data and, and then what you're trying to teach as well, Elise, on top of that? Um, it depends on when they enter. So if, it's, it, for instance, um, we, we picked up one athlete in the mid-season draft and I always find it really challenging at that point in time to try and do uh, all the education that needs to be done 
<coughs> sorry, when they're about to play a game. So they arrive on the Monday and they'll play a game on the Saturday. So that can be really challenging. So it often takes a little longer with those athletes, but um, I just start with the basics and, and start building from there. So if they start in season, um, the priority is to get their knowledge around the game nutrition as a priority and then um, sort of move back from there. If for the athletes who are starting at the start of preseason, um, we obviously start with that and then move into games as we sort of transition into that pre-competition period. And I guess as, as far as a, the numbers or, or GPS perspective, um, these numbers are sort of sent out or the report is a training report and the game report that's sent out sort of every week or, or following each session. Um, so I guess sort of initially it's a, a conversation with the player as to what these sort of four or five metrics are, uh, how we measure them and what we're sort of trying to gauge or, or capture with those metrics. Um, and then, as I said, because we're sending out reports so often and they're, they're naturally very competitive and, and trying to see, you know, who they've run more than or, you know, who they've run faster than, um, they sort of naturally become, uh, I guess, familiar with, with the metrics and what, what they mean. It also depends on their coach too and how frequently their coach refers to the GPS data in their um, assessment of their performance and what they're uh, talking to them in terms of uh, GPS data versus their technical tactical. Thanks so much for that. That's a great answer. Um, good luck for the rest of the finals. We wish you all the best and thank you to all our members who have tuned in today. This recording will be available on Moodle from tomorrow and please don't forget to log your CDP points as well. You're eligible for 10 points from this session. So thanks to everyone for being here today and we'll see you for our next uh, uh, webinar in this series, which is Making Way. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Beth.